And if you want to see what games we are covering today, I'll also put those in the show notes with timestamps so you can skip to games you're specifically interested in. The first game we will cover today is Throne and Grail, which is being reprinted as District Noir. Throne and Grail is a two-player only card game from Japan that has been long out of print, but I recently reacquired it to give it a shot as my wife and I have been really into two-player games lately. In Throne and Grail, there are four rounds where each player has five cards in their hand. Some of these cards have suits, some of them have positive and negative points, and three of them have parts of the Holy Grail. On your turn, you have the excruciating decision of either playing a card from your hand into the common row or taking five cards from the row. You may only take cards once per round, so deciding when to take it is a very difficult decision. You'll win the game in one of two ways. The most common way is by having the most amount of points at the end of the game. The suit cards, which are five, six, seven, and eight, are scored for the player who has the majority of them at the end of the game. So if you have a majority 8s, you'll score 8 points, for example. You'll also tally the positive and negative point cards as well. However, the more exciting but much rarer way to win the game is by collecting the 3 grail pieces. This second way of the game, especially when someone first takes one of the grail pieces. Once you know the other player has a grail piece, your mind starts to focus in on it. What are they doing? Are they really going for the grail win? And it's an interesting way of keeping the game interesting because if someone grabs the 3 pieces, the game is over. It doesn't matter how many points the other player has, so it makes it feel like your lead is never safe. I have a soft spot for games that do so much with so little. It's a deck of 45 cards that makes your brain burn with probabilities and tough decisions. There will always be three cards that are out of the game, so when those later rounds pop up, you start to wonder if the grail piece you need is in those three unused cards. Is it worth taking the cards in the row even though there are only two of them because your hand is full of negatives? But more than that, this game led to an interesting discussion with my wife, who is one of the writers for the YouTube channel and podcast, even though you don't get to hear her actual voice. While I was talking about this game mechanically, she immediately said, you can sell this one. And the point she brought up was a good one. In the landscape of two-player games, or games that are good at two players, this one is pretty themeless. Sure, the art is decent, but there really isn't anything that has to do with thrones or grails. The theme is loose at best, and when you have so many terrific two-player games that do more with theme and artwork, this one just isn't inviting enough to pull off the shelf. And I think that's where this game falls. It ultimately is a game that one would play for its mechanics, its stressful decisions, and it is one of those games where it'd be fun to play with the same person over and over again, if you're both interested. But I have to agree that I don't know how many times I would choose to play this over most other things in my collection. It sits somewhere in a 6 or 7 out of 10 range for me, a game that I'll be in the mood for every once in a while, but probably won't be making any top 50 lists for me. You can play it on BGA to try it out, and I think for some people, like Board Game Barrage's Kellen, they are really going to be enamored with this one. If you like games like Airland and Sea or Battleline, I think this is worth picking up if you can find a copy, which should hopefully be somewhat soon with the retheme slash reprint. We are going twofold on Taiki Shinzawa games this week, starting with one that we just posted a how to play and review video for, Pin Combi Trio, which we'll post a link for in the show notes. 
Pin Komi Trio, as I mentioned, is designed by Taiki Shinzawa, the designer behind Ghosts of Christmas, American Bookshop, and many others. But this game is published by Shogakkan, a huge book publisher in Japan known for Doraemon and other family classics. So what you get from Shinzawa is a fully fleshed out game for families with a simple rulebook and easy to learn, easy to teach mechanics. This and the next game we will talk about are interesting climbing games in the sense that you could only play the same type of play as the lead player. In this game, those plays are called pins, combis, and trios, named after the types of comedic performances that are on Japanese TV shows. It's worth noting that the artwork of the game is all famous comedians. Pins are comedians who are forced to perform solo, and those are your one-card plays. If you play a one, the next player just has to play something higher than a one, and you go around the table until everyone but one person passes. One passes if they can't play a card higher than the person before them, or they just choose not to, and the person who passes draws a card and is out until the next climb starts. Combis are the name for duo performers, and those are two-card plays in which you play two in a row. So if I play a 3-4, the next player has to play a higher two in a row than that, like a 5-6. Finally, the most interesting play is the trio, a three-piece performance. These are plays in which the difference between the cards are the same, and you beat them by playing a trio with a larger difference. For example, if the person before me plays a 2-4-6, okay, those have a difference of two each, I could play an 11-15-19 because those have a difference of four each. The game is over once someone runs out of cards. Now, I'm not going to go super into detail here, A, because these episodes are supposed to be quick, and B, our video online is almost 20 minutes. But to sum up our thoughts, this game became an addiction for like a week. We just never stopped playing this one, and we never stopped playing it with my in-laws, who don't play many games other than the game of life that I think they bought when my wife was in high school. They immediately understood what they had to do, and my father-in-law was actually the one who won the first game, as he was content to just play pins when the rest of us kept passing trying to get these great combis and trios. It's a game in which you are constantly left agonizing over whether to stay in the hand to get rid of the cards now or wait until you can do some amazing play later. And that loop is addicting and fun no matter the gaming experience of the players. Although some of Shinzawa's games have felt more like a published idea than a published game, this one feels fully fleshed out and I couldn't be happier about it. This game, because the publisher, is probably the easiest to import Shinzawa game and it's nice to recommend a game that you can actually get pretty easily on Amazon Japan or whichever site you like. The next Shinzawa game to talk about is Combo Tracks, which was actually given to us by the same person as Pin Combi Trio. Thank you so much. Combo Tracks is a two-player dueling video game-like climber in which both players will have a hand of cards and play a pretty basic climbing game. Like Pin Combi Trio, whoever's the start player decides the kind of play, which could be a single card, a run, a pair, a three of a kind, whatever. The cards are numbered one to six, with six being the weakest and one being the strongest, and that's really important. Each card also has a suit that doesn't matter for the strength of the card, but does when it comes to damage. Yes, I said damage. You see, you'll go back and forth trying to climb higher than the other player until someone can't play anymore. That person who can't play will then take damage equal to the lowest card in the run of the other player. So for example, if the winning play is a 1-2-3 run, the other player would take 1 damage. They also get to choose one card from the middle four cards, then the other player would choose one, and as a consolation, the player who lost would get to take one more. They also get a gauge cube. The suits matter because every game, each player gets a hero character card that gives them a suit play to aim for because it does special things. The suits in this game are A, B, C, and an arrow card. On the character card, it'll say what combination of those suits gives you a bonus. So for example, one character's power is that if you play a run that wins and it goes B, A, C in that order, the other player takes two additional damage. 
other powers might be taking additional cards from the middle, or if you have three gauge cubes, you get a plus one for all of your powers. I actually first got this game from the designer himself at the game market, and he was so excited to tell me about it, and I can see why. Although I do feel a bit bad I traded away the original copy. This game is such a good back and forth, and you never quite feel out of it. The first game of this, I kept losing play after play against my wife, but I ended up coming back and winning because I left all my good cards for the end, and just decimated the only card she had left. And the character cards are just mwah. That was a chef's kiss because I forgot that this is an audio medium. It makes every game feel different, even though the climbing part of the game is absolutely nothing special. I got rid of this game once without playing it, but now that I've played it, I won't be making that mistake again. Expect a video review on this one in the coming months as we rack up our plays of it and test out different character combinations. Moving away from Japanese games, I played a lot of the classic game Can't Stop this month, both because I was in an online tournament, but also had family time around the holidays. And I think there is no game that better exemplifies the differences between online implementations and physical implementations. Well, first, let me explain the game. Can't Stop is a push-your-luck game in which you roll four dice and move your pawns up the mountain based on those dice. If you roll an eight and a two, for example, you would move your pawn up the eight and two rows. However, you're bound to those for the rest of the round, and so let's say your first couple rolls, you are bound to eight, two, and six. You can choose to stop at any time and save your progress, but you decide to keep rolling, keep pushing your luck, and you roll a four and a ten. Well, you busted, and all of your progress this round is lost. The first person to claim three rows wins. The online implementation is fast, and I'm able to crank out a game in about 8-10 to 10 minutes at three players. It's snappy, the computer figures out all the dice rolls and your possible options, and I get a good rush when I win, which isn't that often to be fair. But what is missing is the interaction, the trash talk, the coaxing others to keep rolling and to take a chance, and then the laughter when they bust. Can't Stop almost feels like two different games based on how you're playing it. Physically, it feels almost like a party game, with each person being interested in each other's moves. It can be a bit long and the downtime is not a nominal thing though. However, the digital implementation strips out a lot of the downtime, but it also strips out the interaction. Sure, you can trash talk in the chat, but it's often with strangers and you don't know how they'll react, so you don't say anything. I usually try to recommend Can't Stop because I think it's a classic and is still popular for a reason, but I'm unsure which version I would really recommend first. What other games do you feel torn up about whether the digital or physical implementation is better? Let us know on Twitter or Instagram. I'd love to hear your thoughts on other games or Can't Stop. As I mentioned, we played a few games with my family over the holidays, two of which being absolute collection staples, Telestrations and Deception Murder in Hong Kong. Telestrations is a game in which you ask, what if telephone was mixed with drawing? Everyone starts by writing a word. There are some provided for you on a card, but you can make up your own too. And then you pass it to the next person who then tries to draw it. Then they pass their drawing to the next person and they'll write the word they think it is. Then they'll pass it to the next person who draws that word and so on and so forth. Once it gets back around, you'll then share the story of probably how your word became something completely different, laughing about different people's drawings and guesses. My family really enjoyed playing this game, and we put this game on our episode listing games to bring to the holidays, but I think part of the appeal is just how unassuming it looks to people unfamiliar with games, or maybe who have someone in their family who is a hobbyist. My family always goes, oh no, what is he going to bring us when they see my collection, and I think it's because they see the big boxes in my room from Kickstarters and such. But this box is small and unassuming and looks like a party in a box, that they just immediately take to it. Plus you can get it at Target, Walmart, wherever for pretty cheap making this not only a great game to have in your collection, but a good present for others. I know that there's a way you can play this game for points, but I actually don't know those rules because every time I've played it, we just play for the laughs and fun, and I think that makes it a great family game as well.
The other game that I was surprised my younger sister wanted to try was Deception, Murder, in Hong Kong. She's been recently listening to true crime podcasts, so she was intrigued by a game in which one person at the table is secretly the murderer, and she gets to try to figure out who it is. My wife and mother both love clues, so they were intrigued at this real-life clue as well. In Deception, one person plays as the forensic scientist who cannot speak but can only choose the best word on six different clue cards that describe various things like the scene of the crime, what the victim looked like, and cause of death. Everyone has cards in front of them that represent various weapons and evidence left behind. Like Werewolf for Mafia, the game begins by passing out secret identities which could be cops, murderer, and other roles we won't get into here. Everyone will close their eyes after looking at the cards, and the murderer will open their eyes and tell the forensic scientist, who is like the GM, what murder weapon card and what evidence card in front of them will be the answer for the game. From then on, the forensic scientist will try to give hints to let the cops know the weapon and evidence. The players must guess both the weapon and evidence correctly to win. After three rounds, if they can't get it, the murderer wins. This game was super exciting. I usually don't like it as much at five people, as the additional rules really bring an extra spark to the game, but this one was hilarious as the forensic scientist. The whole table suspected the murderer right away and kept getting 50% of the answer correct, but the murderer ended up winning because they just couldn't get the weapon and the evidence correct. I'm always torn whether this is really a good game for new to gamers, but I think I need to reevaluate what that means. With people who are really into the theme, this game wasn't at all hard for them to understand, and I'm glad that my sister surprised me by asking to play it. This game remains in my top 10 of all time, and now it's even more cemented there. Thank you so much for listening today. We've got some great videos and episodes down the pipe, including a guide to buying Japanese games both in and outside Japan, deeper dives into combo tracks and other Japanese games, and more psychology and history-themed podcasts. It's going to be a great year. Happy New Year. Akemashite omedetou gozaimasu. Janne.